There's just some things more powerful than words. As you watch that, and as I watch that this week, getting ready for my message today, I couldn't help myself but think, why me? Why would he do that for me? You see, when I think about surveying the cross, I see exactly, or maybe I don't see exactly just how much my sin cost Jesus. Every thought and every action that I have or will commit to see the cross is to see the display of the wrath of God that we rightly deserved. But he took it upon himself. Every time I've taken something that's not mine, it's the cross. Every time I've lied, it's the cross. Every time I've gossiped or talked bad about someone else, it's the cross. Every lustful thought I've had is the cross. Everything I've ever done to hurt, to bring malice against anyone else or hate someone, it's the cross. Every act of rebellion, it's the cross. Every nuance or facet of my pride is the cross. Every drop of blood that Jesus shed was to cover every sin that I have or ever will commit, the cross. And so we stand here today thankful. Are you thankful? Are you thankful that Jesus came, that he died, that he was raised again, that he ascended back to the Father, sent his spirit to be with us, and that he is going to come again? Are you thankful? Does it cause you to rejoice? Because he did it just for you and for me and for anyone, the whosoever will that would believe. Jesus said in John 17, the night before he was crucified, he said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your son that the son may glorify you, even as you have given him authority over all flesh, that to all whom you have given him may have eternal life. This is eternal life that they may know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. I glorified you on the earth. And listen to this, having accomplished the work, I did the plan. And that plan at this point was to glorify the Father of heaven. And now he's saying, now Father, glorify me together with yourself, with the glory that I had before the world was. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and God was the Word. And He became flesh. This is the way. This is the plan. And God did it for you and me so that we could be with Him. And folks, that's all the reason I need to worship the King of Kings. I'm so glad you're here today. And with this in mind, I want to invite you, if you have a Bible or device, to go to the 19th chapter of John. Let me say happy Easter. My name is Jamie. I'm the lead pastor here. If you're joining us online or you're in this room, you're not here by accident. I don't know why you chose to come today, but I know this, God wants you here. God wants you exactly where you are. And today we get to experience worship 
together. And the way I read my Bible and the hope that I have is that when two or three are gathered in his name, he is here in the midst of us. So whatever you came in with today, whatever problem it is, whatever's weighing on your life, whatever you've got coming up, I know one thing for sure. God promised to be with you if you know his son. And that excites me. It excites me because today we can reflect on the new beginning and the new life that Jesus is offering to us because of what he did on the cross and because he busted out of that grave. That's the hope that we have. And so we're going to go into this second sermon of this series called Finished. Last week, we read through Psalm 118, and we saw that the plan of God, in that plan, God provided a couple of things for us. He provided an open gate into his righteousness, a stone rejected, a day made, and a name exalted, that through Jesus, we can have access to God. You, you realize that. There's no other way into that gate except by the righteousness of Christ. And he paid that price for us to have it on the cross. He gives us a foundation. He is our rock. He is the definer of our life. And we have hope in him. There is nothing else that we can put our hope in. Folks, ladies and gentlemen, let's get this right as the church that we can't put hope in the government. We can't put our hope in people or worldly plans, the only plan that we can put our hope in is the plan that Jesus Christ paid for on the cross to save you. That's it. That's the only thing you can put your full hope and confidence in. And nothing can stop that plan. Nothing can change that plan. It's not redefined. It's not rewritten. It hasn't changed for 2,000 years. It's still the same today as it was the day when he walked out of that tomb. Does that excite you? Because I don't know, after this is the third service today, and I'm just getting started. I've had plenty of caffeine. That plan was prepared by God. No, you know what? It's not caffeine. It's the joy of the Lord. I don't know anywhere else I'd rather be than worshiping with you right now. And I'm so glad. Again, I'm so glad. If you're a guest today, don't slip out of this place without us getting to meet you. We've got an absolutely fabulous welcome team out there. There's a welcome desk to my left as you go out. There's coffee to the right. We'll still have coffee. You need coffee for the rest of the day. Some of you are going to hide Easter eggs for your grandkids. You're going to need some coffee. This plan is finished. It's completed. It's done. And Jesus uttered one little phrase out of the seven phrases that Jesus uttered on the cross. There's this one phrase that I've always, it's just, it's always blown me away. In the Greek, it sounds like this, tetelestai. It rolls off the tongue. It actually does. It's an easy phrase to say. It comes from the Greek verb teleo, which means to complete, bring to a conclusion. And we translate it, it is finished. It's in the perfect tense. And English is not a good language. Can we just all agree with that? In other languages, you have perfect verbs, and you have imperfect verbs, completed and not completed. So I am preaching. That's not done yet. When something is perfect, that means it's completely completed, and it has an ongoing effect, and Jesus dying on the cross finished the plan. It is completely completed. And so I want you to stand with me today as we read from the 19th chapter of John. We're going to start in verse number 17 and go all the way through 30. 
But I want you to pay close attention when we get to the end in verses 28 through 30. But I wanted us to hear this read again. Because we're here to worship, we're here to magnify, we're here to glorify God. And this is what it said. It says, they took Jesus and he went out bearing his own cross to a place called the place of a skull, which is called in Hebrew Golgotha. And there they crucified him and with him two other men, one on either side and Jesus in between. We know from other gospels, they stood there and mocked him until one gave his life to Jesus. Pilate also wrote an inscription and put it on the cross and it was written, Jesus, the Nazarene, the king of the Jews. Therefore, many of the Jews read this inscription for the place where Jesus was crucified was near the city. And it was written in Hebrew and Latin and Greek. So the chief priests of the Jews were saying to Pilate, do not write the king of the Jews. But he, but the, he said that he said he was the king of the Jews. Pilate answered and said, what I have written I have written. Then the soldiers, when they had crucified Jesus, took his outer garments and made four parts, a part to every soldier and also his tunic. Now the tunic was seamless, woven into one piece. So they said to one another, let's not tear it, but let's cast lots for it. Let's roll the dice to decide who gets it. And this was to fulfill the scripture. They divided my outer garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. Therefore, the soldiers did these things. And may I remind you that one of the seven things Jesus said is, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. Therefore, the soldiers did these things. But standing by the cross of Jesus was his mother and his mother's sister, Mary, the wife of Clopas and Mary Magdalene. And when Jesus then saw his mother and the disciple whom he loved, who was John, standing nearby, he said to his mother, Woman, behold your son, and then he said to the disciple, Behold your mother. And from that hour, the disciple took her into his own household. And after this, now pay attention, Jesus, knowing that all things had already been accomplished or finished, to fulfill or finish the scripture, said, I am thirsty. A jar of sour wine was standing thereby, and he took a sponge, they took a sponge full of sour wine upon a branch of hyssop, and brought it up to his mouth. Therefore, when Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, Tetelestai, it is finished. And he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. Father, in the name of Jesus, would you speak to our hearts today? And if there's anyone in this room that does not know Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior before they leave this place today, may they give their life to you in Jesus' name. Amen. Only here in John do we hear this statement, it is finished, completed, done. Matthew's account, Mark's account, and Luke's account all tell different facets of this story. Matthew's account mentions the two thieves insulting Jesus. They mention the quotation of Psalm 22, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And Matthew actually indicates that Jesus was offered this sour wine twice. Matthew also records that the veil of the temple was torn in two, that the earth quaked and dead came back to life. Mark's gospel is almost exactly the same. Luke adds a couple of different things. One, he adds that Simon the Cyrene is pulled from the crowd to help carry Jesus's cross. 
And then we have the narrative extended where the one thief asked Jesus to remember him when he comes into his kingdom. But then we get to John. Because John, out of the 12 disciples, was the only one that we know was up close enough to have dialogue with Jesus. First-hand account, standing there with the other three Marys. And heard these words. It's done. From this scene, we can see that the plan that God intended from the very beginning, Jesus brought it to completion. We have hope in Christ that our sins can be forgiven because, guys, we do have a problem. We're sinners. And even on our best day, our sins offend the holy God of the universe. But Jesus Christ, being fully God, saw our problem, and he came to solve it. And when we put our faith and trust in Jesus Christ, we can be saved from our sin and receive eternal life. That, my friend, is the gospel. Have you accepted that gospel? Have you trusted Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior? Have you repented of your sin? I don't care if you're 5 or 50 or 105. We all need Jesus. Being a member of this church, being on a, a roll somewhere else, having your Bible imprinted with your name does not save you. Being baptized doesn't save you. Being six generations into a church doesn't save you. The only thing that saves you is Jesus Christ. And I want to challenge us all as we reflect on this passage today to reflect on where we stand with the Lord. Because there's nothing that rends my heart any more than to know that somebody may think they're saved and they're not. I want, you to see, I want you to see Jesus. I want you to be saved. And here's the cool thing. Jesus was not caught off guard by this plan. He was not shocked by it. He knew this plan from the very beginning, that it was God's will for him to go to this cross, to die, to pay for our sins. So I want you to look at verse number 28 again, and let's kind of dig into this. For point number one, Jesus knew the plan. Jesus knew the plan. The word teleo occurs three different times in these three verses. And that word means to complete an activity or to bring something to a close. And it, it occurs 26 times in the New Testament. And each time it's, it's translated as finish, fulfill, or accomplish, to bring to a close. And we see that from the very beginning, as we referenced last week, Genesis 3.15, the proto-evangelium, as, as scholars call it, the first reference to the gospel where, where God says to Eve, your seed will be the seed of the serpent, that one is going to come. We hear it even more when, when God talks to David in 2 Samuel 7.16 and tells David that his throne would be established forever. So we know that there was one coming in the flesh of God who would be a descendant of David. We read this again in Psalm 2 where he says, I surely declare of the Lord, you are my son, today I have begotten you. Ask of me and I will give you the nations as your inheritance. And even in the prophets, we begin to continue hearing this plan in Isaiah 53, verse number 10. But the Lord was pleased to crush him. Who? Jesus. Putting him to grief if he would render himself as a guilt offering. Then he says, my servant, 
will justify the many as he will bear their iniquities. Praise the Lord. He did that for us. And all along, Jesus knew that this was the plan. Reading that verse again, it says, After this, Jesus, knowing that all things had already been finished. Already been finished. How many of you have ever been in a football game, like a participant? You played on a team. Or maybe like me, you were in a degree program, it seemed like for 75 years. And you're working and you're working and you've got to, you got to pace yourself because it's not something you just get done overnight. Some of you ladies in here, if you're making a pound cake, I remember my grandmother making pound cakes and we'd come to the door and we didn't knock, we just came in. As soon as we step in, she'd get on to us, don't you stop on my floor, because what would happen? That pound cake would, you got you to, gotta, you got to wait. You've got to, to let the process go through. And that's what Jesus knew. He knew this plan, and it was coming to fruition. He had glorified God. He had told the world who God is. He had revealed to the world the love of the Father, and he told them of the Father. And we begin to tell them, that if you see me, you see the Father. He glorified the, the God of heaven. And now he's hanging on a cross, high and lifted up, as the Father glorified him. And we think, that's not glory. That's awful when you think about all the things that Jesus endured. But in that, we see the love of God manifested as he poured out his blood for you and me. That's why when we read Psalm 22, which is full, if you want something to read today as a devotion, read Psalm 22. As David is writing this psalm, as Enemies are coming against him. He's questioning God, saying, God, why have you forsaken me? And Jesus cries out the same thing on the cross. God, why have you forsaken me? Because at that moment on the cross, the wrath of God was bearing down as he bore the sins of entire the entire world at one moment. And we've heard the phrase that at that moment, the father had to turn his back on his son. The Trinity, God the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit in perfect unity. And for that moment, the Father had to turn away. The perfect Lamb of God who took upon himself the sins of mankind. And when we go back to John 17, as he's, he's speaking there and he, and he talks about glorifying God and accomplishing that part of the plan, I want you to think about that as the little T, little tetelestai, or little teleo. Compared to the big T, it is finished. When Arthur says it like this, he says, and yet it is the accomplished work of Christ proclaimed by the little T, glorify God, that makes the, big, makes the work of big T, it is finished, even possible. That is, before we can call on Christ for eternal life, we must identify, we must know the identity of God the Father. And how do we know that? How do we know God the Father? We see it in his perfect son. Jesus wanted you and I to know the Father, and he paid the price to make it possible. Because see, he knew that plan. As early as his childhood, when he becomes separated from, his, from Joseph and his mother, and they find him in the temple, and they're like, Why are you, why'd you do this this way? You're treating us this way. And Jesus said to them, Why? Is it that you're looking for me? Did you not know that I had to be in my father's house? He acknowledged the plan. But also during his ministry, he reiterated the plan. 
when he's talking to Nicodemus in John chapter 3, he makes a reference to Numbers 21 where the Israelites had complained again and God sent uh, serpents, snakes into the camp that were biting them and, and they were dying. And they pleaded with Moses to plead with God and Moses plead, pleads with God and God says, here's what I want you to do. The very thing that's causing them death, I want you to put it on a staff, a fiery serpent. I want you to hold it up and whoever will look upon the serpent will be saved. They won't die. And so Jesus says to Nicodemus, as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so the Son of Man must also be lifted up so that whoever believes in him will have eternal life. And during his journeys, Jesus specified, I mean, he, he spoke with absolute specificity to this plan in Mark 10. As his disciples were going up to Jerusalem, he says, behold, we're going up, and the Son of Man will be delivered to the chief priests and the scribes, and they will condemn him to death, and will hand him over to the Gentiles, and they will mock him and spit on him, scourge him, and then kill him. But three days later, he'll come back to life, and he will rise again. Jesus knew the plan, but folks, that doesn't make the plan easy. That doesn't mean that what Jesus endured was endurable. It means that Jesus had to take this plan that he knew, and he had to own it. Second point, Jesus owned the plan. He took ownership of this plan. That second part of verse 28, he says, to fulfill the Scripture, it's subjunctive which means it is a dependent case of this verb. And so what, what is it that he said was going to fulfill the Scripture? He said, I'm thirsty. So for those of you that's been in a football game, or maybe you, you know, you're, you're watching this Masters weekend, and you're watching these guys for four days play four rounds of golf that takes four to five hours, it's an endurance, not counting the, the days and weeks and months and years of practice. Or like for me, when I finished my last degree, you know, I was in it for seven and a half years, and you think, oh my gosh, that's, that's a long time. Well, it was for me. You're in the middle of a program like that, and you're going, am I ever going to get done? And so, you know, when you get started getting to the end of a, of, of, of a plan, and I remember mine, it was, the last step for me was to go to my exit interview. And this was after COVID was over, so they required it to be face-to-face. -face. So I made my appointment. About 2 o'clock on a Thursday afternoon in New Orleans, Louisiana, I did not fly. I got up at 4 a.m. that morning. I jumped in my car, and I drove straight to New Orleans. I got out. I put on my suit. I walked in with my papers. I sat down. I got my interview. I walked out. I came back. They were all standing, which meant I passed. I clapped for myself. Yay! I went back to the bathroom. I put on my regular clothes, took my suit off, drove to Gulfport, Mississippi, got me a shrimp po' boy from Shaggy's, and then hit the road again and drove all the way home. And yes, I turned it around in a day. But you know why? Because it was done. That was my last step. And so Jesus is there, and he says, I am thirsty. Psalm 69 and I want you to think about this as I read it from the perspective of Jesus. Reproach has broken my heart. The heart of Jesus broken as he hung on that cross. And he says, I am so sick. I looked for sympathy, but there was none. And for comforters, but none was found. Then listen to this. He says, they gave me gall for my food 
And for my thirst, they gave me vinegar to drink. Who wants to drink vinegar? I made reference to this story earlier, but many, many, many years ago, the Georgia Tech Yellow Jackets were playing the Florida Gators. And back in the day, they didn't give their athletes water. If you've been to Georgia Tech, you know there's a little building nearby called the Coca-Cola Tower. And their athletes would drink Coke, according to this story. Well, the Gators started something new. They put mineral in water, and they called it Gatorade. And this isn't water, boy. But the Gators won that game, if I understand that correctly. Now, that may be a fable. I don't know. But the point is, you know as well as I do, if you're thirsty, the last thing you need to drink is soda, isn't it? Right? My son loves milk. The last thing you need to drink when you're thirsty is what? Milk. It makes your mouth sticky. The last thing you'd want to give to a suffering man is vinegar on a sponge. And it's exactly what they did. The final act of suffering. The one cut off from the living. And here's the irony. The one who's asking for a drink, John said, was the giver of living water. You know, if you go back to chapter 4 of John, when he's interacting with a Samaritan woman, he asks her for a drink physically of water. And she said, do you know who you're talking to? I'm a Samaritan, you're a Jew. We're not even supposed to be talking to each other. And he said, woman, let me tell you something. If you knew who it was that was asking you for a drink, you would ask me. And I'll give you water that will well up in you, living water. He says it again in John 7, 37. If anyone is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. He who believes in me, as the scripture said, from his innermost being will flow rivers not drips, not streams, but rivers of living water. The point here is that Scripture had to be fulfilled, and Jesus was doing that because he owned it. He knew the plan, and he owned the plan. And by this, he completed what not only the plan entailed, but what Scripture entailed. He knew the plan. So whatever that program or process or game it was for you, you know what it's like to endure through a plan. 30-something years into this plan, Jesus finished his work. And we know he owned it. I mean, if you think about the scene in the garden where he's praying the night before he's crucified, in Luke twenty-two forty-four, Jesus was praying with so much agony, not my will, but your will be done. He began to sweat blood. It's a, it's a word, if I pronounce this right, hematohydrosis, where you begin to have blood expressed in your follicles and you sweat blood that is a lot of pressure and pain and he did that because he was gripped he was gripped by this plan and he said if it's not my not your my will but yours be done but writer of hebrews would go on to say that jesus learned obedience in this suffering and then he, he identified this he identified the plan even in his own actions when he's sitting at the last supper with his 12 disciples and in John's account, he gets up and he washes their feet. Remember that? One of those 12 was Judas. And after he washes their feet, they're sitting at the table. What would you do if you knew that you had a traitor in your midst? Jesus owned that plan so much, he looked at the traitor and said, whatever you're going to do, do it quickly. Can you imagine what Judas must have felt at that moment? First of all, he's probably like, Oh my gosh, how did he find out? That's what our kids do. 
You're like, who broke the vase? I didn't. I mean, he did it so subtly, they thought he was going to buy some more food. He slips out and he goes and gets together with the Roman guards and the temple guards to come back and arrest him. Jesus owned it. And then Jesus embraced it. As he's being arrested, he says this, it said, Have you come to me with swords and clubs to arrest me as you would against a robber? Every day I used to sit in the temple teaching and you didn't seize me then. Then he says this, But this has taken place to fulfill the scripture of the prophets. Jesus owned that plan. Paul summarizes it like this. He says, For I delivered to you of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins, listen, according to the scriptures, and was buried and raised on the third day according to the scriptures. He owned the plan. And in fact, if you think about it, even standing there, he, he looks at Pilate and said to him, you do not, or Pilate says, you do not speak to me. Do you not know that I have the authority to release you and the authority to crucify you? And I love this. Jesus looked at him and said, mic drop, boom, you don't have authority over me. Unless it had been given to you from above, for this reason, he who delivered me has the greater sin. Jesus was in control this whole time. And he'll be in control all the way to and on the cross because he owned the plan. Isaiah spoke correctly. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to slaughter and like a sheep that is silent before its shears, so he did not open his mouth. It was a reflection because he knew the plan and he owned the plan. It was a reflection of what the Israelites experienced during the plagues of Egypt and that last plague. The Israelites were commanded, I want you to take a perfect lamb and kill it. And you're going to take the blood and you're going to strike the doorposts. And as I send the death angel through to kill the firstborn of every house, any house that I see the blood, I will pass over. And that blood, that blood by the perfect lamb was shed for you and for me. And God wants to apply it to your heart. So that when you leave this world and you stand before God in judgment, you will be passed over. Otherwise, you will bear the wrath of God for your sin. See, Jesus completed the plan. Therefore, it says, when Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, it is finished, completely completed for all time, for all people. At that moment, whosoever would believe could be saved because of what Jesus did. In fact, I don't think Fred minds me sharing this, but I want to I make sure you understand this. When Jesus was hanging on the cross and it said he bowed his head, that meant for six hours on that cross, he wasn't just grouped there like this. He wasn't hanging there like a scarecrow. He had his eyes fixed straight ahead because he was in control of what was going on. He could have commanded the angels of heaven to come take him off that cross, but he didn't. He hung there and he endured it. Why? Because he wanted to complete the plan. Tetelestai, it is finished. As Thomas Constable says, at that moment, Jesus cried out with a loud voice, it is finished. 
He probably shouted this with an exclamation of triumph. He did this. Jesus was not only announcing that he was about to die, he was also declaring that he had fulfilled God's will for him. And the use of the Greek perfect tense here signifies that Jesus had finished his work providing redemption completely and that it presently stood finished. Nothing more was needed or ever needs to be needed, needed to add in order to finish it. The finished work of Christ is the basis of our salvation. Or as Edwin Bloom says, looking in archaeology, they found papyrus strips that said this, that there were receipts for taxes that had been recovered with the word tetelestai written on them, meaning paid in full. And Jesus did that for you and me. He provides us forgiveness. He told his disciples at the Last Supper to drink of the cup because it was the blood of the new covenant was poured out for the forgiveness of sins. He provides redemption. Ephesians 1, 7, in him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace, which verse 8 then says that he lavished on us. He bought us back from sin and from death and from Satan. He did that for you. Why? So that we can have eternal life. Romans 6, 23. That the wages of sin, what we earn, what we deserve is death. But the free gift, say free. Say it like you mean it. Free gift of God. Not you can't earn it, you can't buy it, but he gives that to you freely. The free gift of God is eternal life in Jesus Christ our Lord. In a verse all of you know, John three sixteen, For God so loved the world, that he gave his one and only son, his only begotten son, that whoever would believe in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. To be finished, to move forward, as he promised on the third day, and as we read earlier, we see the discovery of the empty tomb. And it says the ladies, while they were perplexed about this, that does not roll off the tongue, perplexed. Behold, two men suddenly stood near them in dazzling clothing, And as the women were terrified and bowed their faces to the ground, the men said to them, Why do you seek the living one among the dead? He is not here, but he has risen. He has risen. Something that needs to be shouted from the mountaintop. He has risen. And he says, Remember what he said to you while he was in Galilee? That the Son of Man must be delivered into the hands of sinful men, crucified, but on the third day he will rise again. And it says in verse 8, And they remembered his words. The light bulb went off, the switch was flipped on, and they went, oh, that's what that means. He completed the plan. The last blanks you should have on your outline says this, God's plan to save was completely completed on the cross. Don't ever think, don't ever think that the plan's not done. It is sufficient, but here's the other thing. It's powerful enough to save you doesn't matter where you've been, what you've done, how many sins you've committed, how far away you think you've strayed. Getting your life together isn't going to bring you to God. Coming to God will get you back to God. He's saying, come as you are. Let him clean you up. Let him forgive you. His work of atonement was, for sin was done. The demands of the law had been met, and the debt for sin had been paid in full. So we live our lives 
And our lives is like a box of Legos. Kind of like Forrest Gump saying life's like a box of chocolates. You never know what you're going to get. Legos is kind of the same thing. I mean, you buy a box of Legos like this, and you know, it comes with all these pieces. And I want you to think about your life like this box of Lego pieces. Now, sure, you could sit down and snap a few of these pieces together and build some semblance of a model, but that's not the model of life that God has for you. You need an instruction book. You need a plan, right? I mean, you could sit here and play with these all day long, but if you don't do it according to the plan, it doesn't get done according to what the plan wants, which is eternal life for you and for me. But see, we live life and things happens to us and, and we're broken and we're disjointed and, and things happen and what we build kind of falls apart and it just kind of seems like that right there. And our life is a shambles and we kind of scurry around trying to, to put these pieces together and, and, and when we, we're discouraged when it doesn't seem like the pieces actually fit the way we want them to fit. And a lot of times it's because not this instruction book, but according to this instruction book, we haven't put our life together. We haven't founded our life on the gospel of Christ. We are still living in our sin. We haven't repented of it, turned away from it, submitted it to the Lord, seeking him for forgiveness and following him with everything I have. Remember what Jesus said to his disciples, if anyone would come after me, he must deny himself, take up his cross and follow me. And so I wonder in this room today, as we're sitting here reflecting on Easter and the cross and all things that are, that are about what this weekend means, do you really know Jesus? And I'm not asking that so that we can say, hey, we had three people come down to an altar. That's not what this is about. This is about when you walk out that door, maybe the last time I ever see you. And I don't want you to go out that door and not know Jesus Christ as your Savior. When I've counseled with my kids, I don't, want, I don't think he minds me telling this story, but when my son was saved and we were talking through the how you know you're saved part, and I said, Micah, how do you know if you're saved? And he said, because Jesus said so. And I'm like, wow. Out of the, out of the mouth of a seven-year-old comes this profound theology. And so when I counseled with kids for years and years as a children's pastor, I came up with a thing where I would talk to him and say, I want you to think about two words. And I'm telling the same things for you today, two words. Two words that you'll never forget from this day forward. Two words that will be seared into your heart, how you know that you're saved. You know what those two words are? Jesus promised. If your salvation is hinged on anything else other than the very word of God saying, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and God raised him from the dead, you can be saved. If your security is found in anything else, it's not secure. It's only in Jesus. And so today in your bulletin, I got homework for you. Everyone today received a gospel track. It's a pamphlet. If you don't know what a track is, it's a pamphlet that explains to somebody through Scripture how they might come to know Jesus Christ. Would you be willing, if you know Christ as your Savior, would you be willing to take that this week and give it to somebody? Maybe drop it off in their mailbox. Put a, if you need a phone number, put the church's phone number on there. We want them to be able to call somebody and talk to them about how to be saved. Or maybe you can go to coffee and say, hey, listen, I've just been thinking about you. All I want you to do is just take this and read it. One of my seminary professors shared with us 
that he was saved because of a gospel track he stuck in a nightstand. Someone gave it to him, he discarded it, but he picked it up one day, and that's how he met Jesus. Or maybe you need to stick it in your Bible. If you don't know Jesus Christ, today, today is the day to do business before you leave. So I'm going to ask you all to bow your head and close your eyes. Many of you have been praying for your three. You've been praying for somebody that you know to come to know Jesus Christ. And I hope today is that day. I hope seeds were sown, and I, th- I pray that, that their hearts have been tender to the gospel. But what I'm going to challenge you today is this. is With every head bowed and every eye closed, if you're here today and under the convicting power of the Holy Spirit, you say, I don't really know Jesus. I thought I did. But based on what you're saying is that I'm a sinner. Yeah, you are. And you stand under judgment. But God in His mercy and grace sent His Son to die on the cross that He might take your sin away. And He's inviting you to repent of that sin, to turn away from it. Say, you know what? I don't want to pursue that anymore. And to turn to Him in faith. Trust that Jesus is the Son of God who died on the cross and raised again. If that's you today and you want to be saved, would you slip up your hand? I just want to see it so that I can pray for you at this moment. And I'm going to give you some instructions if that's you. Anybody? Now here's what's going to happen. We're going to stand in just a second and we're going to sing one last song. Thank you. Thank you. In just a minute, would you mind coming down and talking with us? We'd love to get to meet you. Would you all stand at this moment? We've got a couple of counselors that's going to come down. Crosby, Fred's over here. I'm going to be on this side. If you want to know how to be saved today, I've already told you, you just got to trust Jesus. We'd love to talk to you about that a little bit more. Encourage you. But guys, I'm going to ask you, if you're, if you're here today and you're saved, celebrate. As we sing this song, let's leave this place with worship on our lips and a song in our heart. There's no other day like today to worship the King of kings and Lord of lords. So Father, move in our church right now. Touch our people. Encourage them in the gospel. Encourage them to take the gospel. And Lord, for those hands that did go up, God, I pray you give them the strength right now to come down and talk to us. In Jesus' name, amen.